0: My guest today is the very definition of a rugby titan. A Cardiff boy through and through, it's no exaggeration to say, he shaped the history of Welsh rugby. And the signs were there from an early age, a product of the storied Cardiff Blues Academy. He represented his nation at every age group before making his full Welsh debut at just 20 years of age. Two years later, he'd become Wales' youngest ever captain leading them to a Rugby World Cup semi-final in 2011, a Grand Slam win in 2012 and back-to-back Six Nations Championship wins for the very first time in Welsh history. The logical next step, I guess, was to take on the captaincy of the British and Irish Lions, once again as their youngest ever. And what a job he did, leading them to a series win down under, their first in more than 15 years. Having achieved so much, he took the brave decision to retire at twenty-nine. The result of a career spent leading from the front, it gives me incredible pleasure to welcome Welsh rugby royalty, Sam Warburton, onto the podcast. Sam, welcome. Ah, oh, thank you, sir.
1: Very nice introduction. You don't get that every day, so that's uh, it's nice to hear. So good to see you.
0: Well, I I, I used to have a, uh, a lecturer at Loughborough University. It always reminded us all that we never, we only ever reach perfection on our CV, but <laughs> I'm I'm probably not even in those few sentences doing full justice but let's there are you know we can we can pick up on <laughs> some of those uh, some of those bits and pieces clearly we've just emerged from a world cup and to the untutored eye which is openly how I watch rugby and play the game at school level very very modestly but to the untutored eye it looked pretty sumptuous fare as as world cups go is that how you saw it
1: yeah Do you know what? i actually think of say people like yourselves when i was watching the games recently because every now and then rugby goes to a new level and i finished well 6 years ago so you know the game was sort of known as you know as physical then but the world cup just gone and i think there was a game against ireland and south africa in the group stages i'm not sure which games you saw i, I was at doing... that game this would be a good one to ask you then and I watched that and I thought, well, I, obviously you got a you got a much better understanding of rugby, but I thought some and I'm used to watching physical games, you know, like it's that's why I yeah. love playing it. But I was watching it with a few of the other uh, ex pros as pundits for the T V after the first three to five minutes, we looked at each other and we were like, oh my goodness. It was it was yeah. almost barbaric. It was just jerseys flying yeah. everywhere. And I thought, somebody's watching this for the first time and they're going to be thinking, what on earth is this sport, <laughs> Rugby Union? But did it feel like that to you? Because even to us, we were like, wow, the rugby's gone to another physical height. And South Africa were the sort of, um, they were the standard, that World Cup. But is that how you felt watching it as well?
0: Well, I'll tell you what was interesting. I've been in a stadium on two occasions where people have just been genuinely shocked by mm. what they saw. 2000, I was there working actually for the BBC for um, at the Sydney Games and Cathy Freeman, I don't think there's probably ever been an athlete that had so much resting on her shoulders. And for 40 minutes before her race the stadium was almost silent. I mean, there were other things going on. Michael Johnson was racing. You know, there were some outstanding athletes and everybody was just sort of sitting there nervously focusing on on this race. And there was a level of expectation, I think, in that stadium beforehand that I sort of recognised from Sydney. And you're right, after about five or six minutes, people who were sitting around me and I was sitting with some, you know, some chairs of the (laughs) union... And you know, some former players, and and there was just a genuine shock about the physicality. And yeah. the only thing I could think was, oh my God, those medical teams are not going to get any sleep for the next three or four days. There's gonna be some, there's gonna be some really, you know, some big patching up jobs to be done tomorrow morning because there was one hit early on where everybody just winced and thought, oh. You know, and and it just continued in that vein. It was
1: was phenomenal. I don't know. I actually, I love the sport for that reason. And I think, I I kind of think back to like, you know, those all those years ago. So you could be, you know, wherever back in Italy and you had the sort of gladiatorial arenas. It's that sort of human instinct that I always think if you like just got a drone and some alien just came in from another world and just watched 80,000 people just cheering these thirty men just flying into each other, they would think, "What is this? Is this what you doing into each other? Is this sport? You're cheering physical confrontation <laughs> and domination." And but weirdly, ironically, that's why I played the sport, and it, and it's, that's what finished me as well. And I was playing football at a young age at under fourteen, so I played for this one team, and it was from a the, the team were from a fairly affluent area. But I joined, them, and I'm not a rough kid, but I just enjoyed the the physical aspect of sport and they had an immaculate disciplinary record and my first season there i got something like three yellows and a couple of red cards not not for foul play because i'm not a dirty guy but just from being physical you know
0: and yeah. uh, it was at
1: this point i sort of realized at 14 i was like i need to play a sport where right? I'm, I'm allowed to try and physically dominate people you know and it's and it's rewarded because and that's why i love rugby like and mind you whenever that happens i was the one thing i don't like about rugby i was never the sort of person to drop an elbow, cheap shot. I I, I hated all that. I, I was really against all that. But I did love trying to win that that physical battle. And going back to what I sort of just said, you can understand why people still kind of have that innate instinct where they just cheer that, that sort of gladiatorial type battle. It almost goes back all those thousands of years, you know. So obviously there's a lot more rules <laughs> around it these days. But people love watching that. They don't, And I think that's what I think really captures the imagination of of rugby fans as well. They love that, you know, no matter what happens um, politically, economically, you put two countries together and you can just one-on-one just beat them for those
0: 80 minutes, you know, and and just put everything else to one side. I think that's what people enjoy. I'm now going to carbon date myself because I'm a whole heap older than you, but (laughs) I started watching rugby seriously in the 70s and I'll come on to that because, of course, the dominant force in rugby in the 70s was... Were, were those great Welsh sides? I can't remember. I mean, it was just, it became sort of ritual, humiliation, and slaughter when, you know, England never <laughs> went to the arms park. But the interesting thing for me was watching the way the game developed uh, in, in terms of its physicality. And I sense that it was that all black side in the 70s that brought a level of fitness and training. You know, suddenly you'd got, you know, guys that were clearly playing and in in, in reasonable shape, but then suddenly an all black side turned out and they all looked like decathletes. Yeah. I think it was the side that Sid Going um, captains, and you know, it was they. They, I, I sensed that it was actually that period that really started to shape the physicality, the conditioning, the more scientific approach to to rugby training, which I guess you guys have sort of been the inheritors of. New Zealand have always been,
1: and frustratingly, but they've always been the visionaries in rugby. You know, they've always, even though they're not world champions, the things they do, they tend to be one step ahead. And actually South Africa have been, without going to rugby tactics, have actually done that themselves in the last four years, which is why they've won back-to-back world championships. They've really bent the rules to try and gain at seek an advantage and play to their strengths. But that has always historically been the All Blacks. And I think the one player probably really... um who really made that mark. Uh, you're right. It would have happened through the seventies and eighties. Um, New Zealand won the first world cup in the eighties, then in the nineties, when Jonah Lomu came through, he was the first player who I felt, um, and Adidas, um, I remember they tweeted this because he was an Adidas athlete. and I thought they got it back on. They said, we all played the game. Jonah changed it. And it was like, RIP Jonah, yeah. he passed away. And because he'd be, a, he'd be a, f- a physical freak player nowadays. and, he sort of really took that New Zealand physicality to a whole new level where rugby's kind of changed from being this um, open sevens type game that we might see in the Olympics to this physical combative war that it, that it's almost become now with still a bit of, there's obviously skill involved and a lot of tactics, but, um, more often than not, the most physical team wins more often than not in rugby. But I yeah. got Jonah Lomo from New Zealand, was the epitome of that. But New Zealand have always been the people that pe- the, the team that that side is chasing down. They've always been excellent and they're in their own little corner of the world. You know, like rugby was introduced to them. Obviously, the, 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 the game rugby started in England. You know, and I actually said that to an England international recently. I said, Do you know why it's called rugby? And he said why i said well because it was first played in rugby he went oh my god i never knew i was like you
0: play for england
1: mate like you should
0: know it took a welshman to explain that (laughs) maybe i'm a little bit of a rugby rugby anorak and that's why he fell into broadcasting yeah yeah. that's quintessentially the best definition of missionary work i've heard for a long time (laughs) i want to pick up i want to pick up on something you said a few moments ago and this is the beauty of these conversations because it you know it, it's it's just something that made me think because it almost answered one of the questions i was going to throw at you which was you chose rugby not in a in a you know for skullduggery or you know or, or foul play but you chose it because you actually liked the process of physically dominating your space your 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 sport I've always rather thought that we make a mistake in thinking that you pick a sport. I've always thought that your sport picks you and it finds those natural inclinations, those natural characters, characteristics. You may not even realize it at the time. Some people drift towards team sports. Some people like me end up, you know, being comfortable in their own company for a hundred miles a week on, you know, on moorland roads and things like that. I I'm, Fascinated that your your background, of course, is quintessentially a suffusion of landscape, geography, friends, education. It was the school you went to was you know had a you know an unbelievable history of sport. I think Gareth Bale was in your was in your year at school or in and around that period. But the one thing I'm guessing I'm interested in is if you look at the small population. Uh, in global sport that have gone on to absolutely dominate a sport. And and I've sort of jotted them down here. You've got Kenya, you've got Jamaica, you know, sort of circa 3 million people, uh, the dominant force in the last 35, 40 years in in sprinting. You've got New Zealand, you know, another relatively small population, 5 million, and dominant force in rugby. It's it's often what is embedded in a community. And I guess that you were in part, I mean, what is Wales? Again, sort of roughly 3 million people um, and, and a sport that is sort of focused on a couple of valleys. It's, it's an extraordinary story, particularly if you look at the way the game developed and, and became such a, you know, so totemic of Wales during the 70s.
1: You're so right. And don't get me wrong, I'm not going to talk here like Wales are world champions. The 70s team, I think, would have had a good run at it, Mind going back then. But I think, and our current coach at the moment, Warren Gatland, someone asked him, how do you um, measure success as Welsh coach? And he said, by overachieving. Because it's difficult to say for Wales, I mind you, if I was, um, I'm not trying to preach for a job now, but if I was, say, in charge of the Welsh Rebunion, I would put out a bold statement and be like, look, I, look my, my aim here is to, make Wales into world champions, male and women's team within the next eight years. That, that's that got to be the goal, but being realistic right now, they're not going to get there, but Wales do significantly overachieve for, for a small nation with 3 million. And going back to what you said about culturally, I remember being in primary school and football was my first sport. I loved athletics as well. Um, I used to do uh, pentathlon. You mentioned then about decathletes. I think a lot of rugby players are kind of in that decathlete mould. You've got to be quite good at everything to play rugby in certain positions, you know? Similar to a Catholic, you've got to have a endurance, you've got to have that fast twitch ability, you need to be able to jump, you need to, you know, there's very similar traits into catholics and rugby all, players. All the physical literacies, actually. Yeah, yeah, you've got to be good at everything, which a lot of athletes yeah. kind of, they're on one end of the continuum or the other. They're either like sort of endurance or they're sort of extreme fast twitch rugby players, you've got to kind of have a bit of a hybrid. But I remember playing football because I was a, originally a, a football player, and I imagine this happens all across the country. Don't on football football's still a big sport in Wales, but. I was like, you know, when I was young, I was tall and quick, and I was like to my headmaster, I was like, yeah, I'm playing football, and he saw me sort of like winning races and 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 things. He was like, mate, you, and I remember he just gave me the rugby ball. I was like, you got to play rugby, you know, and and I played it, and straight away I sort of just picked it up and and enjoyed it. And but that that would happen across. Well, what,
0: Sam, what age was that?
1: About nine. I was only nine. I was in year five now, so I was like a year below playing for the like playing for the year sixes. And he said, just go on the wing and just follow. So basically, wingers have to be outside what is the number 13. He said, just stay outside number 13. That's all you've got to worry about. And he'll give you the ball, you know. And he just gave me the rugby ball. And that, that was literally how I my introduction to rugby. I remember actually being on the bench one game um, for Cardiff schools when I was like only 10. It's my first game for Cardiff schools. I didn't know the rules because I always just played for the school. He said, to so stay outside the winger. And so I was on the bench and somebody just made a break down the touchline from, it was like Bridgend is at the town in Wales. And I was playing for Cardiff. I didn't know what to do. And I was on the bench. I was like, why is no one tackling him? So I just ran off the bench and just smoked him. And, and then they had to stop the game. Like, no, no, that's Sam, you're on the bench. You can't do that. You know, but yeah, I think it's just, like you said, it's just sort of culturally embedded. If you're, if you're quite, um, I, I mean, there's the least arrogant way. If you kind of, you, you can see, like you would have seen it when you were sort of 10 If you've you've got an athletic ability that some of the kids don't have. You know, the teachers will more often than not say, listen, you, you've you got to hold this oval-shaped thing, you know? So that is a very much a Welsh cultural thing, and you're right. It's only – even up north, it's not really explored. Up north is a, a football kind of region. So you're looking at really the 2.2 million where it's heavily concentrated down South Wales. Up north is somewhere which needs to be explored, but that's a political decision for another day. Um but but Wales, yeah, there there have been some great players from the north who've come first, but it needs to be tapped into more. So even then, we're still the actual rugby side of things. It still makes it smaller again. So Wales are they're very good at overachieving for the size of their nation. I think that's down to culturally how how much people love rugby around their clubs, their towns, the valleys. You know, it's a it's a working man's game rugby in Wales. You see the the class system. So it's, when, you, when you play England schools, you know, it's just chalk and cheese. You know, we play England schools growing up, and we take them to, um, like, Aberavon and post-match functions. You're eating off polystyrene <laughs> plates and beans and cheese. And we go to England, and they're in these, like, spectacular grounds in the middle of the countryside, and they're all, like, go, all go to private school, you know. And it's, it's very different. But then when you get to the professional level, it's very strange. You go to any rugby environment across Wales, England, the world, and they're all the same. You know, the characteristics of people who play rugby, they're all all the same, which is what's lovely about the game. And, you know, that was seen when the Lions even played New Zealand in, in the tour in 2017. There's that very iconic picture. We all mix together at the end. Rugby cultures, no matter where you are around the world, are all very similar. But Wales is is definitely
0: embedded in that culture. I mean, I'm actually interested in That it was, again, just a quick digression, but actually athletics is almost... Entirely a state school sport. Um, I'm probably going to get a, a heavy post bag after saying this, but very few top athletes have made it into any British team have actually come out of the public school system. Really? Yeah, in, yeah, yeah, no. It's, yeah, in rugby, it, uh, until relatively recently, it was very much, very, very much the other way around. And, you know, it's just one of those. Quirky things. I mean, I was only ever at a state school, and I I have a massive debt of gratitude to my geography teacher who, you know, used to ask me quietly during lessons, Am I, how's my mileage? And I'd say, Well, I'm a bit down this week. And he'd go, Off you go really <laughs> that. he also took religious instruction so it probably tells you a lot about my spiritual underpinning as well and <laughs> yeah. um, look we, we I'm interested here we've we've touched on landscape we've touched on culture we've touched on geography and the impact that's, that that has had on you and your love for rugby The one area I'd like to just briefly explore is the role of family. Were parents really supportive of what you wanted to do? Did you have rugby players in the family? You know, was it something that you know was was very much a part part and parcel of of Saturdays and Sundays?
1: Do do you know what's one thing I haven't been able to figure out? And by the way, my parents—they're both still around. I'm very fortunate, and they were both amazing for me. And I'm I'm a young parent now seven I got a kid who's seven uh three and a baby and I'm like I'm gonna follow my parents leads like and I've heard this sort of quote like 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 coaches coach parents support so and I had that my parents were amazing at that every game they were there um you know I wasn't from a, a family who had lots of money so you know my dad would walk a couple of miles every day like every time I played for the school to come and watch me and then he'd walk back and like whether they you know they'd always stretch themselves, get them get whatever kit I needed, drive me around everywhere, cancel holidays, so I could go train with the academy every day of a summer. Like they were unbelievable at supporting me. My dad didn't have a did know diddly squat about rugby, so which is great because he could just stand under the post and just watch me. even for Wales, I'd come off the pitch for Wales, They have a family room next to the dressing room. and like I could get mad of the match, play really well. I'd walk into the into the family room twenty minutes after uh, the final whistle. And you also like that all the parents are there and family and you turn up in your kit with all the players, just the Welsh boys. And my parents would be like, did you, did you play well? And I was like, yeah, I, know I had a, I had a good game today, dad, you know? So he had no idea, you know, if I played well. So I, I loved my, my parents and what they support me. But like, I hear people like when I listen to other podcasts, like, go, where did you get your, so I talk about like my mindset and my obsession to, to win and to be as good as I can. I still can't really figure out where that came from because i wasn't from like a a really deprived family so it wasn't like motivated financially it wasn't that um i didn't necessarily have like a a role model who came from my area who i thought oh yeah i could follow his leads i just i just had this deep burning desire at the age of about i'd say 13 14 where i suddenly decided i'm playing for the lions and i'll tell a quick story on that it's um my dad was a fireman. He came home from work and he had this piece of paper and he said, um, oh, Sam, fill out this piece of paper it's just for a colleague. His son's doing some homework. Just write down what you want. Um, and I think it might be to do with the fact I'm a twin, but we can go into that a bit later maybe. But Because we were so competitive, but we're best of friends. So maybe we, you know, we really drove the best out of each other. Because we were the same in school. Like, we revised like crazy together. Each other's biggest fans, but really competitive at the same time. It's a really brilliant relationship to have. But he brought home this piece of paper, my dad, and he said, I'll um, oh, just write whatever you want. So I looked at this piece of paper and it just said, name, age, sports, position, and ambition. So I just wrote down, uh, name, Sam Warburton, age, 14, sports, rugby union, position. I was an open side flanker, number seven. I love number seven. And then it just said ambition. Now, I'm not saying I achieved this, but I'm just saying the story as it is. I wrote down on ambition British and Irish Lions rugby legend, and I give it back to my dad. I remember he said, "What, Sam? What what are you doing? You can't, you can't write the word legend. It's a bit arrogant, you know." I remember saying, "Um, "But, but that's what I want to do, Dad. Like, I don't just want to just play for Cardiff or Wales. I want to be like, I want to be one of the, I want to be one of the best guys, you know. I want to be one of the best who's ever played for the Lions and." that Christmas my dad bought me a, a lion shirt with a number seven sort of uh, like printed on the back I wore it everywhere like non-school uniform days training like training in the gym at home I was obsessed with it and even when I was in school um, I remember saving up all my pocket money so I converted my garage into like a multi-gym so it would be like all oh, spiders and cobwebs is proper rocky yes but I had a multi-gym in there and I was 15 training like crazy used to go running around late at night to try and be really fit I changed my, my jam sandwiches and honey sandwiches in school for tins of tuna because I knew it was good protein and my packets of crisps for fruits. I knew it was much better for me. The school would open up the gym at lunchtimes for me. Similar to you said about your geography teacher letting you out. you know They let me train and they really supported me on my journey, which is why I loved is High School. But then say like fast forward then 10 years from probably that moment. And it was when it was the, my first ever test match of the British and Irish Lions. And I got my jersey the night before in this jersey presentation. <clears throat> and normally in the dressing room, on the saturday so the day after you turn up and your jerseys are all there beautifully laid out one to 23 on your pegs As you can imagine the change room but on this friday evening we did the shirt presentation and uh it's a real honor to you know to play test match for the lions yes. and i figured out that with the with the playing numbers across the four countries i was like as a kid when i used to play people be like, are you nervous about playing against that player from astrid monarch you know even the dragons academy or something you know when we're playing in wales i'm like no I'm nervous about, the, about my performance because I want to play well, but I'm not worried about playing against him because if I'm going to be number seven for the Lions, I can't just be the best player in my school or best player in Cardiff for my age group. i got to be the best in Wales, England, Scotland and Ireland and over probably a 16, 17 year age range. i got to be that one guy who wears the number seven shirt. And I figured out from looking at the number of registered players it's, probably, it's a one in seventy five thousand chance that you wear you know, on average that you wear that number seven shirt test match for the lions. so I was like, i'm I'm playing Test match Lions. So I was thinking, you know I knew I was athletically quite lucky in the sense, you know, I'm like six three. I was quick, I was fit, which was good, which was a good um good head start. but I thought, but more importantly, I thought he doesn't train as hard as I do. He doesn't eat as healthy as I do. He doesn't recover and focus on his sleep and nutrition like I do. He doesn't have my desire. He doesn't have my mental toughness. So he doesn't have my professionalism. This this guy can't be as good as me. He he just he he just can't. And so I'm in this sort of jersey presentation. I get my shirt and the kit man comes up to me the night before about to play Australia for the first Test of the Lions. So I got my number seven shirt. He goes, Oh Sam, normally these are in the dressing room. So so do you want me to get them back off the boys or do you want to keep it and take it to the game? I remember saying, mate, there's no way you're taking this off me now. This is mine. Because about six months after my dad gave you my shirt, I remember putting it away. And he said, Sam, where's that line shirt I got you for Christmas? Because it cost me a bit of money. And this was, say, I was 14, 15, just after I first filled out that piece of paper. I remember putting it away and saying, dad, I put it away because the next thing I got away has got to be the real thing. I'm fed up of being this pretender. I went up to my hotel room on this Friday night for the test match. I laid it out on the bed with the number seven facing up and I pushed out all the creases and I stared at it. And then I went to leave the bedroom to go get some dinner with the lads. Then for the second time I went back and stared at this seven shirt. And I went to leave the bedroom for the third and final time. I went back and stared at the shirt, just beautifully facing up at me. And that was the moment that I realized that 10 years of like hard work, sacrifice, commitment had paid off because you see this, especially this younger generation, there's no such thing as that overnight success. Like, you know, people might see yourself running the Olympics or myself playing for the Lions and think, oh, he's done well for the last year to get there. It's like, no, that, that, that's, that's yeah. 10, 15 years. That's the, that's the tip of the iceberg. Exactly. That's 10, 15 years of diligence that people haven't seen, but has got you to that, as you say, which is a nice analogy, that tip of the iceberg. And that's kind of that was kind of my mentality. And I don't know where that came from. Like my parents were really supportive. I mentioned my twin brother, but I was just desperate from a young age just to do something that that other people couldn't do.
0: But, you know, it, it, sometimes it, it's not an exact science. There is just an intensity and a passion You know, it's, you see it in great musicians, you see it in great academics, you see it in people that, you know, just, you know, are born with that, you know, and, and, and yeah, there are externalities, there are all sorts of, you know, the landscape, the job, all the things we've talked about, but there is, there is in some people just that burning ambition to, to figure out what's around the corner and just be restless and curious about it. 100%
1: 100% I remember asking you and, and like, you thought nothing of it and I was like that is so unusual but in a good way and it shows there's something special there I don't think I remember asking you when did you realize that you were you were fit and I can't remember you ran was it some like five or ten kilometers or something you used to go on runs when you when you were like five or six years old or something I can't remember
0: yeah I did I ran I just ran for the hell of it I just I still yeah. I mean it's that's
1: it's amazing a charitable,
0: and even it's then, a charitable description <laughs> of what I do now but I still get you know. It's, you know, for me, for you, it was, you know, physically dominating, a, a you know, a, a pitch. For me, it was just the sheer pleasure of going out and running. Let me, again, you know, you, you're throwing out such gems here. Let, I, I, I'd like to pick up on something that I think I heard you say, which is, you know, the resilience, the the focus, you know, sitting back and recognizing that you've done this for 10 years before anybody's and you know, actually, Phil Knight, the uh, great visionary behind Nike, the owner of Nike, I asked I him a similar read that book. question. Yeah. Well, he on the podcast, uh, one of your predecessors on the podcast, he described Nike as the fifty-six-year overnight sensation. <laughs> yeah. And I guess it's it's the same thing in any you know you you sort of see the you know the balance sheet, you see the Forbes rating, you see the billions of whatever turnover it is, but. You know, he started with, you know, working with a coach uh, that happened to be a track coach. He was a marketing major, track and field, and you know, the rest, the rest is history. And it's just a long slog. But what I'm interested in here is that, you know, you made your debut at 20. You were captain at 22. You led the Lions at 24. You know, it's yeah, grand slams and all sorts of things. What I'm fascinated in is how did you actually deal with that pressure at such a relative, such relative, relative tender years in your career? Those sorts of that that sort of status, I'm guessing, in in most sports probably doesn't start beckoning until you know you're at least into your late twenties. Uh, you know, I know sport is getting younger, and you know, people are assuming more responsibility early on, but. My God, to have been Welsh captain at 22 in, in that cauldron of of expectation, that you know uh, uh, where would you start? How did you deal with that? You know, I, I do think,
1: um, being perfectly honest, I, I haven't really said this, to be honest. <clears throat> you mentioned I finished young. I, I do think maybe if I was... Give, and I'm not saying... Um, I, I'm so thankful the coach made me captain and I'm so thankful that I was talked into doing it because it set me up and I've learned so much from doing it. But the emotional toll of, of I found doing it probably difficult and probably might have shortened my career um, because I felt I couldn't then just drop back. You know, I felt if I couldn't be captain, it couldn't be the best I could be. Then I didn't really want to play, which is probably why I finished a bit young. I might have had a couple of years left to me, but I didn't want to wilt away. But yeah, when I was young, you know, I, d- I was captain for like Wales at 18s level, 19s and under 20s level, but I thought I'd just do it now. It's on the rugby CV. It looks good for when I want to try and get a professional contract, but I'll never be a captain. Cause I was always very, almost, um, I'm always painfully shy and introverted. I mean, I can do a podcast like this. I can speak on stage and go on TV. Um, but when pe- people actually know me, no, I'm very, I'm very quiet. You know, like if I'm, you know, I can get very anxious about certain social situations. Like, Cause I just, you know, I'm not like, I'm not a sort of person who goes into a room and just starts talking. You know, I kind of, keep myself to myself. I live a very uh, quiet, tr- try to be fairly secluded. You know, I'm a very introverted kind of person. Um, I've got my sort of group your long of friends. Walks, your long walks up on the Brecon Beacon. Yeah, exactly. You know, I I really like, um, really like just going away and just walking with the dock, you know, and not, not having to speak to anyone. I'm very comfortable in my own time. It's probably why I've survived in the broadcasting world because you travel a lot to games to and fro on your own. You stay in hotel rooms on your own. And I'm like, yeah, I'm comfortable with that, you know, which is why I quite like that. But, um, yeah, when I was young, so I did this captaincy at age group level, and then I was playing for Wales. I could tell they were sort of gradually giving me kind of leadership responsibilities, presenting in front of the group and things. But then they suddenly dropped the bombshell on me. Oh, I want you to be captain for the World Cup. You know, maybe a, a month for the World Cup was going to start at the age of 22. I did it for two games, uh, three games before that moment, which were just World Cup warm-up friendlies because our current captain was injured. So I just do these three and that's it. And two against England, one against the Barbarians. And I remember he asked me on the Monday, the coach, current coach at the minute, Warren Gatland. And I said, I can't can't do it. I was like, and I listed off about 10 other players who I said, he should be coach, uh, captain. It should be him or him or him. And he went, no, I want you to do it. I went, I oh no i said i, I can't he went right oh, i thought you might say this so follow me took me into the uh, analysis room and he said to me um watch this clip so he got one of the an- analysis boys to get this clip of me from the game on the weekend and the clip was just us playing england it's about two minutes ago we won a really important penalty which i contributed to and he just pointed at me on the screen and i can like march in in on the screen i'm like punching the air kind of quite aggressively celebrating. So I knew that penalty was gonna secure the win for us. Picking guys up off the floor, tapping everyone, motivating them, then went to our number 10, spoke about, you know, what was going to be the next play for the next minute or two, relayed that to the forwards. All this happens in about 15, 20 seconds. And he just let the p- clip play out and he just made me watch myself. And he went, That's leadership, and that's that's what I want you to do. It's not these big Churchillian speeches, it's not speaking in front of a a big room of people. That's not what it's about. I want you to lead by what you do and the way you are in training and on the field and your determination to win. I want to sort of rub off on on the rest of the team. And I thought I can do that. That's fine. And I was very lucky at the time I was working with. And back in 2011, it's a little bit of a taboo subject then. Um, And even amongst coaches, because they used to see it as weakness, but I I was using, and Wales were were very good actually at, at this. They sort of quite early on the curve of, Using a sports psychologist within the team. Now athletes have used it, but in team sports that didn't really have the team, the sort of sports psych in this in this sort of time. But I said that's fine, I'll do it. And he was called Andy McCann. I said, but I want Andy McCann to come to the World Cup with us. And we had a team meeting that afternoon, and the coach said, right, we've only got you can take like thirty-three players. We're going to New Zealand, and you're only allowed to take like twenty-five members of staff, for example. Which sounds a lot, but you've got all sorts, you know, medics, physios, coaches, fitness, all that. Yeah, there's loads, you know, media. So um, there's one space left. And he said to the boys, right, we can only take one more member of staff. Um, There's a few members left, but there's only one seat left on the plane. He said, right, hands up. And it was either a video analyst or it was Andy McCann, the sports psychologist. Hands up for the video analyst. And a couple of boys put their hands up. So he looked quite confused. I said, all right, okay, put your hands up for Andy McCann. And almost the whole group of players put their hands up. Yeah. He was like, wow, I didn't realize that many guys were using him because you have that relationship in private behind closed doors. And what what I did with Andy, he went to the World Cup and we developed what was called my leadership compass back then because I had no clue how to be a captain. So we sat, I sat down with Andy and he said, and I went through these really quick. He said, right, Sam, I want you to tell me the four traits that you want to be able to demonstrate daily that you think – are going to make you a good leader and a good captain and he helped me with these as well because that's what he does you know he, he's a almost a leadership coach as much as uh anything else that he does so i by coincidence they're all peas so the first one i said well the first one i said is professional I, and maybe people might be able to get that from that by so this bit of conversation already but i want to be the best professional there is whether it's the way i apply myself to training my nutrition everything you know like being on time dress codes i'm going to be the best pro and make sure that i set the bar really high that was an easy one for me to to do that because i do that anyway we wrote down professional on the north of my compass move around to east that i had i'm really positive i'm always a really positive guy um always believed i was going to win um not naively like if you said to me or oh, sam new zealand can you beat new zealand I knew what they were going to do in the press. They want the headline of Sam says we can beat New Zealand. I'm like, look, New Zealand are a better team than us. They've won two, three World Cups, whatever it is. Are they a better team than us? Yeah. Can we beat them? Yeah, of course we can. You don't have to be better to beat them, you know. So on the day we can beat them, of course we can. So I was always just really positive, you know. So I was like professional, positive. They were easy. The third one, which was when Andy suggested, which I'm glad he did, and. This is where I needed that coach. And he said, people. And as I've mentioned, I was naturally very introverted. As a coach, you, a captain rather, you need to be able to get information from everywhere, from your players, from your coaches, you need to be approachable. So I needed to develop relationships with all the people in the team.
0: Don't have to be Evan's best friend,
1: but I needed to make sure that people felt comfortable in speaking to me if they had an issue, which
0: I needed to sort out. And
1: also Did getting you, the right That's pe- an
0: interesting challenge. Did you manage to maintain that slight separation though? It, it was hard. You know, you're you're reaching out. You're trying to meld a team, particularly as a captain, but you want that slight, that slight distance, which doesn't lend disenchantment, but at the same time gives you the ability to be tough and, I guess, gentle in each equal measure according to the situation.
1: Hundred percent. It was hard. That was the hardest one because it wasn't really me naturally. I, I'm not. a am a confrontational guy on the field. I'm not a verbally confrontational guy. You know. So, uh, and plus, like you know, human. I think people get this wrong with with errors. People like to be in rugby very harsh on people who make human error. I'm like, I would only ever be like that if somebody was being deliberately negligent. Um, if someone made an error that, that that's not when you call someone out for making a mistake that's when they need support and you know you need to make them feel um, confident and and wanted that's not when you call someone out and that's why I think leaders get it get it wrong a lot but then under that people banner we had getting the right people around me so we developed a leadership group of maybe five or six people and some of those guys helped deliver the things that I'm not very good at so we had guys in that leadership group who are much better at delivering standards than perhaps myself I did it in a in a, um, I led by example kind of way where some people were much more comfortable in being able to drive things verbally more than myself. So I had a, a group of six people who we'd meet every Monday, senior players, coaches, and then we would set the standard and what we wanted for the week to shape like and look like. And we would all drive that. So having those people around me as well, your sort of lieutenants really helped drive that culture and that standard that you want to deliver. And then the last one was performance. Ultimately, you have to do what you've got to do to the best of your ability, because I've had captains who walk the walk, but don't talk the talk, you know, uh, sorry, they talk the talk, Yeah, they don't walk the walk. Yeah. And you Even in a team sport, you still have to, very much like an athlete, you still have to remain very selfish in your own individual preparation to do what you want to do and make sure you do it well. And again, i mentioned Andy McCann, he was speaking to a room of like CEOs and MDs. And he said, strip, take the, take your job title away from you and go into a brand new organization the way you behave for a week, would people follow you if they didn't know your title? And that's how I felt I had to be as a captain. I, you, you don't walk around and use the power to your advantage. You still be you. You be authentic, but you lead by your behaviors and the way you are around people. So that was my leadership compass. And I still use that in life today after after rugby. So it was positive, professional, people, and my performance, and I thought if I could do those four things daily, I'd be a good captain. That's how I dealt with all those young pressures and environments. That but, but, but but but
0: I I'm interested here because you started off this you know little segment by saying you had no idea at the age of twenty two how to be a captain. Actually, you had every idea. Given <laughs> what just you did you know yeah. No, I mean it was in it was it, it was instinctive. I mean, yeah. you identified the professionalism, you identified the Performance. Okay. You got a little bit of guidance around people. But I I think you have you've been characteristically modest here. I think you actually had every ingredients in place.
1: To <laughs> yeah, be do you know what? I, a, a, I kind of
0: a captain.
1: I've almost found I've got more credibility as a captain since I finished, because people then might hear me talk about the game on on TV now. And the way I played, you would probably be understandably um I'd understand if you thought I wasn't really a tactician or a student of the game. I just wanted to go out and and tackle and hit things, but I was actually very studious. So I kind of think back actually to how I was as a player, and I think yeah, I was. I probably did have a lot of the ingredients for a captain, but I just didn't realise it. I just had this stereotypical. No, view.
0: I, 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 look, I think uh, that comes with time and uh, mm. and place. But from everything you just said to me, you started off saying I had no clue about how to be a captain at 22 and it's pretty evident to me you actually <laughs> you actually did. Uh, it, 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 we did a podcast not long ago actually it was my turn to be in the hot seat with you. Uh, and we we laughed about something I said which is that you know weak leaders like weak people around them. Uh and I'm reminded of something that when I was sort of reading around this subject and trying to understand a little bit more about what made you tick, I was fascinated in one instance that you actually talk about and clearly evidence that that the resilience, the the comfort and being comfortable in your own skin because I guess when you're captain of the Lions at 24 and a seasoned Irish international like Paul O'Connell suddenly takes the team talk, that didn't phase you. And I'm guessing that is again, the best example of not being phased by having strong people around you actually relishing being in that environment where somebody actually feels enough buy-in to stand up and, and, and give that talk. And I understand he apologized afterwards and you had, wouldn't have <laughs> anything you know, to do with it. You were absolutely happy. Yeah, that we, he was prepared to to take that sort of leadership role.
1: Well, I, I love that quote that you said. And, um, you know, I, I, I use that when I do talks now, because I think it's so true. And I laughed because I was like, oh, my goodness, you're bang on. Because I'm sure you've seen leaders, whether it's in politics, whether it's in sport, it's in business, who they want to be the big I am on their own, and they think they know everything. And that's the person who's going to fall flat on his face. Where When I was young, I talked about getting buy-in from senior players, it's probably because I went to him and was like, I I need you. I need you to drive this for me. And I think once you say that to someone, they you suddenly realise, oh, this guy's not... He's not thinking he can do this on his own. He needs me. And you get that you get that buy-in back. And that Paul O'Connell example you're on about, I was 24. He was probably 10 years my senior, 34. I thought he was going to be Lions captain. He had a bit of an injury before. So he only just got back fit, which is maybe why the scales tipped in my favour. But he, he is a very well he's confrontational on the field and he was v- verbally very motivating as well very inspiring guy um and he just spoke at the end of a session I, I didn't like to speak too much too often I didn't want people to hear my voice too much but he just spoke at the end of a session really passionately then we as we I remember thinking oh that's brilliant that's awesome because going back to my people you know I sort of had this leadership group of people that I used when I was training so I'd encourage them to speak up in, in training so anyway, a couple of years go by we're doing it for the Lions and he spoke and after we walked off at the session and he said, he put his arm around me and went, oh, Sam, I'm I'm so sorry. And like, it was, it was nice for me because 10 years ago, I was watching him play for the Lions when I was deciding that I wanted to play for the Lions. He was one of my, one of my heroes, I guess. And I was like, oh no, Paulie, that's great. I said, that's kind of how it works with myself and say Alan Wynn and all these sort of legends who are playing for Wales. They drive a lot of that. And I kind of, I'm fairly quiet the first half of the week and I kind of speak more towards the end of the week. And he was like, oh, that's, that's how we work with Ireland, with myself and Brian O'Driscoll, The rugby fans will know who these who these players are. And I was like, "Mate, that's great. Let's let's do this," you know. And you figure out those relationships quite quick. But yeah, you you need you need to be able to get good leaders and good people around you. One to challenge you in a healthy way, but two to also help drive the team. You can't you can't do it on your own. It's otherwise it's just it's me- mentally exhausting. So yeah, that's why I love that quote you said: "Weak leaders like weak people around them," because it's easy. If it's easy to have a load of yes men around you, but as I say, like, you know, hard decisions, easy life, easy decisions, hard life. If you don't want people there to challenge you and just take the easy decision all the time, you're going to end up finding yourself in quite a sticky place. But if you have people who are willing to challenge you and you accept that and you, you know, you don't have to accept everything, but you just—it all just bottlenecks to you. And the good bits, you go, yeah, I really like that. Let's do that. It really helps empower the rest of the team. It gives them that sense of responsibility and that you're caring for them as well. So, yeah, I, I really like that quote, and that's probably a, a good example of when it worked well on that Lions tour in
0: 2013. We we we, we talk a lot about resilience. It's—I mean, if we're being blunt about it, it's it's a slightly overused word. It's a bit like legacy, really we probably can't figure out a better description but let's let's set, let's settle on resilience for a moment because at at each and every stage of your career that's the thing that jumps out to me it's your ability to cope and deal with you know the good times and the vagaries that sport throws up every now and again um i was at the uh, the final in Paris the uh, All Blacks South Africa game um and I'm not raking over the embers here because this is not I'm not remotely interested actually in the the circumstances at the time I'm much more interested in the recovery period but it's quite hard to escape the parallel between the red card early mm-hmm. on in the game for for the All Blacks and the one that you got in uh, in the 2011 uh, semi-final and again, I, I, that's that's a, a moment that actually I'm, I'm not saying I'm not interested in, but that's not where I want to take this next bit of the conversation. I'm fascinated in what you drew down on from all the things that we've already talked about that, well, I mean, you know, a, a year later, you were a Grand Slam winner, uh, two years later, a winning Lions captain. Uh, you didn't let that derail you where there are some who, you know, the missed penalty in the final is actually almost the swan song of a career.
1: Mm. Oh, you, all those memories, you're absolutely right. New Zealand's captain got sent off early-ish in the game, in the final. And I got sent off in the semis, you mentioned it, and all those memories came flooding back. And I actually love those two terms that you use, particularly resilience. What I think resilience is, is... And this is what like, was I the most talented player in my age group? No, there was there was players better than me. I was good, and I don't know. I probably stood out. I was good, but I wasn't the best guy. But the reason I got to the top, and I, that sounds a really arrogant, term. But the reason I, I I got to where I did, sorry, was because I was willing to do all the mundane, boring things that no one else my age was willing to do from the age of fifteen all the way through to when I was 20, 22. So, you know, over five years. I was willing to put in all the running sessions, all the weight sessions, all the nutritional habits, everything that I needed to do. I was willing to to do it for five, six years, which is why when you see a freakish 20-year-old playing rugby, people go, ah, he's taking something or he's just a genetic freak. It's like, no, he's just done what 99.9% of kids aren't willing to do. And if you're willing to just do that work, you will not believe, you will beat 95% of the opposition already, just because most people just aren't willing to do that level of of detail and for, for that long that's why i think resilience is it's just doing those things when And i remember saying to my brother we were going to train once when we were younger it's Like, i don't feel like training today i'm doing it wrong i'm not there's a difference between when you're exhausted and you need to rest there's a difference when you don't feel like training i said to him I said, it's not about training when you just feel like training sometimes it's about training when you don't want to train and just getting the work done and i remember he was like oh my god you're so right and grinding just, it out yeah you just got to get it done ben Get it done, and it's in the bank, and you'll be better for it. It's just another little step forward, and you've got to have that mentality. Like, there's going to be people who don't. There was people who didn't believe in me. There was people who didn't think I was going to make it. Who would say that so and so was better. But I was like, I just, I just wouldn't accept it. I just wouldn't accept it. And I think resilience, and whether it's in sport, whether it's in life, or whatever you go into, it's those who just don't get derailed who just keep going. And I, I did a I did a, a book and it was just called Refuse to Be Denied. There was a song I used to listen to, a heavy metal song, which I used to you, listen to to gear me up. And it's a little bit, it's a bit full on if you're not into metal, but I used to put it on with headphones for a game. And this guy just let rip at the start of the start of the song. But the song was just called Refuse to Be Denied. And that was just like my sort of mantra throughout my whole career. Even if you do get denied, just you've you got to get back on the horse and prove it wrong. So when I got sent off, um, that, that was a, that was the moment that probably changed my life where I went from just being a fairly recognized player in Wales, you know, starting to suddenly being like in the rugby world, a a worldwide kind of known figure, obviously being sent off on that kind of stage. But then as you mentioned, four months later, we won the grand slam against France, which is the sort of European championship. We won all our games, had a clean sweep. Then 12 months later, we we won back-to-back championships for the first time. And then three months after that, 15 of the Welsh lads went on the Lions tour and won with the Lions. I think had i not gone through and us as a group gone through that adversity i don't know if it would have given us the motivation to bounce back and i was thinking i don't want this to define me this red card i want to be known for i don't want to be the guy who is known as who got sent off and i guess i added another another um another word to my leadership compass um, when this happened and I learned this after the World Cup. I went to the World Cup with my original leadership compass my four Ps. And by coincidence, it's the fifth P. And when I got back from that red card, I lost my granddad, who was very I was very close with. I used to stay home and watch sport with him every Friday night as a teenager. You know, when he got my mates, I'd stay in and watch sport with my granddad. But I got home from the World Cup and he passed away. And it gave me that fifth word on my leadership compass, which I which I, I use now, so which was perspective. And sometimes when you think that the world is against you and you're going through a stressful situation, and you'd be the same. I've done some, I've done a lot of charitable work through your rugby career where you meet some people in some very unfortunate predicaments. And suddenly you think, yeah, oh my God, what on earth am I worrying about? Um, and they're really, some of them are really upsetting stories. And then, when I am going through those those moments, I think of those people, or I think of, and it's not maybe till you're older, till you've probably seen some of this adversity or experienced it yourself, that you have that perspective, just to lift yourself out your little bubble, put yourself back in the real world, and go, look, actually, what I'm going through isn't isn't actually that bad. So I had that perspective as well, and that's probably what got me through that red card. Didn't want it to define me, but I also had that perspective that there's much worse things that that can happen in life. And I said that in an interview. Well,
0: it's the great thing about sport, isn't it? That it it gives you. I mean, I I I absolutely was a product of that. It gives you a feel for the human condition at an age, far you know far earlier than yeah, often yeah, right. in 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 other walks of life. Because you see, you see the human condition in the changing room. You see it from winning. You see it from losing. You see it from the ability to to compartmentalize. You you I, I'm going to just. I'm interested in, in, in something you said, because actually, before the World Cup started, you were say you had some fairly strong views about rugby in Wales, um, and you, I think, to, to, to use your words, not mine, you did call for some seismic changes. I'm assuming that that hasn't your views haven't softened off the back of the Rugby World Cup itself.
1: No. Uh, I remember Wales lost to Georgia going back 12 months ago. And uh, Jamie yeah. Roberts was with me pitch side. And look, I, I'm a very proud Welshman. Um, I'm very proud to play for the Lions as well because, you know, my father and all their family are from England. So I love playing for the Lions. So I'm very – but I was very proud Welshman. Wales had never lost to Georgia, never mind losing to them at home. And I was like this I, – and I mean this with the greatest respect to Georgia. I'm embarrassed that we've got a loss to Georgia on our record because the All Blacks would never have that. England wouldn't have that against Georgia, and I used to think like I hear people saying, "Oh, Wales, we love being underdogs." I'm like, "Speak for yourself! I haven't sacrificed all this to be an underdog. I want to be, I want to be the king of the jungle. I want to be the standard bear, lead dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I want, to, I want us to be the alphas, you know. So when Wales lost, I remember just saying, "Me and Jamie looked at each other. No, the, the 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 issues aren't on field." Um, so, so when you're playing, you're quite selfish and you just focus on the team, and the performance. But now I'm sort of outside of I'm still in rugby, but I'm outside of playing. You sort of look at what happens at board level and from a business perspective, and there needed to be ch- significant changes there. There's, you know, you can't have a, an organisation which isn't run by the correct people. And I'm sure the people who a lot of the people who were there have wales's interests at heart but i, I don't i didn't believe the skill set was there um, and look i'm not i wasn't the answer either but i knew there was other people who could go in and, and make significant changes and i remember me and jamie were like jamie roberts who's now actually on the board um for, for the wiu ironically um you know we said look we got we, we got to call this out and it's one of those situations where unless it was called out publicly it wouldn't have i don't think it there would have been a catalyst for change so because we we sort of did that um and Wales has, not, not not because of what I said, but Wales has taken a turn in the last 12 months and is back on a an upward trajectory. But yeah, you sort of realise there's more things that make an organisation tick. It's not just the head coach, not just the players.
0: It, it comes all the way from the top as well. And there needed to be changes there. So talking about trajectories, I mean, it strikes me that off the back of the the recent World Cup, rugby in in some parts is in a very, very strong position. You know, and probably in its traditional um backyard, probably stronger than it's been for some time. But clearly, to move into markets that it's not currently in, and the one that comes to mind, of course, is the USA. Does does rugby have what it takes to break into that market? I mean, it's it's hugely competitive. It's the biggest sports marketing. Uh, it's the, the 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 it's the biggest sports sponsorship market uh, globally. Can it break through? What's it need to what's it need to break through? Yeah, we're sort of seeing the influence of, you know, say like the ML, the MLS in football. Yeah.
1: Uh, and sort of David Beckham out there, you know, doing great things with into Miami and the profile of the game, you know, Lionel Messi's gone out there. That's fantastic. And rugby has what's called the MLR. Now it's it's quite it's probably where the MLS is, but maybe 10, 15 years ago. But where where rugby, and I think the decision makers in rugby have made an excellent choice is for the first time ever, the Rugby World Cup in 2031 is going to be in the USA, which would be massive because it'll incentivise USA to, to be better at rugby. They're pretty competitive at sevens. But I mean, look, you've competed in America. The amount of people and athletes they have over there, my goodness, you only have to watch the NFL. They've got Plenty, unbelievable amount of people who could play rugby union. So I think having the World Cup out there is is massive. And I've always been an advocate for supporting uh, the, the sort of, you have the European competition where you have your big six teams in Europe. You have the Southern competition where you have your big four teams there, Australia, South Africa, New Zealand, Argentina. So you have the, the 10 teams there. Then you've got a lot of these nations, like you've got the sort of Melanesians and Polynesians of Fiji, Samoa, Tonga, then you've got in America, your USA's, Canada's. There has to be more input into those because we're quite far off football, where football, you go to a World Cup and there could be 15 to 20 teams who can all, who could beat each other on their day. Where rugby is like, you know, you go to a World Cup and maybe six teams that are very pushed could win the World Cup. You know, we want that to be 15 to 20, make it more competitive. So having the World Cup in 2031 is a massive plus, having, because that's going to drive, and I'm kind of seeing it in, in in other sort of aspects now, where there's a lot more interest in rugby in America, which is great. But if we can tap into that American market, it could be a a huge catalyst to to really kick rugby from a popularity perspective and financially as well. Like the All Blacks. Well, are there.
0: I, I, I'm just smiling at one analogy you used, which was actually that you know the number of people playing a sport at at the highest level in certainly their staple sports up until the Jamaicans sort of sport the party that we used to say in track and field, the best, the best sprint team in the world, you know, is the Americans, uh, sprint team. And the second best sprint team is the one is the team the Americans leave behind, <laughs> yeah. you know, it was, it, they, you know you, you're sport for choice, but it is a, it's, it's a tough old market. And interestingly, I guess sitting at the heart of that, and the, and one of the big debates in US sport at the moment is is the broader impact on on welfare, mm. you know, mental and and, and clearly yeah. physical concussion is a is a I mean the, the NFL is a is a wash with di- with discussion about concussion, particularly at at, at college level. Um, you have quite fixed views on, on uh, welfare. And I guess sort of pinning you down a bit on your decision to retire at 29, there, there are probably a suffusion of reasons, and, and uh, I, I've read about some of those. But was welfare one of them for you?
1: Yes. Um, I, there's, a, there's a lot of players who've come out in the UK, recently especially since um and there's a film called concussion which got will smith in it and i do urge people to watch that because it's very accurate yeah it's
0: a good yeah. it's a good movie
1: yeah it's very good and um there's you know, so people wear head guards like the analogy they use which um if you put like a golf ball in the middle of a glass with water in it it doesn't matter how much bubble wrap you put around that glass if you move Here. it left and right, quickly, that golf ball is going to hit the wall of the glass. That replicates your brain moving amongst the fluid yeah. in a very simplistic yeah. way. So you can't really get away but from it. it's the
0: same argument about head guards in boxing, of course.
1: And this is where I find rugby gets a little bit of unfair criticism. In rugby, if you show any sign of concussion, which a lot of people think concussion means being knocked out unconscious. Concussion means it's, any, it's a brain injury. So it could mean signs of that is slurring, loss of balance, Uh, feeling sick, doesn't have to be knocked out. If you show any sign, and I have an independent doctor watching every rugby game, if you show any signs of that, loss of balance, you're off the pitch. And the earliest you can play is seven days, more often than not 12 days for um, long story short. If you've got any history, which most people do have, of concussion, you can't come back within 12 days. Now, I think that should be a bit longer still. Um, But in in boxing, if if you show a concussive symptom, you've got rather than have 12 days like rugby you've got 10 seconds to prove you're okay and you go back again now if boxing had the same protocols as rugby there wouldn't be a sport so i think rugby gets quite unfair criticism but i do yeah. agree that rugby still needs to do as much as it can because i see a lot of players coming out who have got dementia at the age of 40 50 uh, i'm a little well, Brian
0: bit... jones is a, is a sad example of course
1: yeah yeah and a lot of them have had treatment and look i don't suffer with anything and I was chatting to a lot of um, some of the fifty-year-olds who are well, late forties, fifty now in the World Cup team, uh, winning team for England in two thousand three, and I say, have you got, have you got anything? And some of them are like, no, I'm absolutely fine. I think it's very. Some people are like kind of prone to getting soft tissue injuries. I think some people might be more prone to getting brain injuries, but I'm not taking any chances. I take like um, I'm, I am concerned about it because, and I take a supplement now, which is a, it's a mushroom called lion's mane, and there's a lot of evidence coming out that lion's mane can help brain injury so i take lines main every day not because i'm struggling but just because i don't want to take any chances you know and i played rugby yeah. knowing that i might have physical limitations when i grow up i had no clue that when i was playing that it would have um mental implications so that that does worry yeah. me a little bit but um I, w- I was quite even though i played a very hostile position i probably got a lot more head bangs and other players i didn't really suffer with um I-, I had maybe three or four diagnosed concussions that sounds a lot but over the course of 200 games that's when you're having there, yeah. 150, 100 contacts a game, I'm, I got away with it quite lightly. But I did finish prematurely because I did think the risk of playing rugby probably didn't outweigh the reward of a healthy, long family life with my kids and hopefully grandkids. I don't want to be that granddad who hasn't got a pair of knees to walk around and play or, you know, not be able to be in, in a mental health to be able to talk like some people are worrying about now so I was a little bit concerned about that um and I just thought I'd put my health as well first and my family first and that's probably why I finished decided to finish probably controversially quite prematurely in a a lot of people's eyes.
0: Well I've always taken the view that the question you really want is why did you retire rather than why didn't you retire and I you know (laughs) From that point of view, you, you clearly got it right. Ed, do you think we put too much pressure on sportsmen and women? Um, pressure of scrutiny, of extreme training, you know, and, and bearing the... Bearing, I mean, I'm guessing some of that might have borne on the decision that you took to retire at 29.
1: This is, um, and I mean this in the least patronising way, people will see sportsmen and women and... They just think that you're immune to all criticism. Um, yeah, and, and they are oh, because they're on good money. It's okay. Look, when, and people say this, and I've all I've kind of disagreed. And people talk like you hear these millionaire billionaires talk saying money doesn't make you happy. And I'm thinking, I'll well, try saying that to a family who've got no money, who are living in poverty on the breadline. I'm like, it makes you happier but it doesn't make you happy. You know, I think there's a bit of a people kind of, it's a bit misleading when people say money doesn't make you happy. Of course it makes things easier. So I think people think that with sports room because they got money. Oh, it makes it easy. They can cope with it. Like I, I it really affected like my family, um, the criticism and, you know, I would have received death threats when I was playing. Um, you know, I did receive death, during that red card period, you know, I would have death threats and people turning up at your door, but like, you know, like I remember walking into Twickenham to play England and people like, I mean, this is where I don't want to paint a bad picture. 99.9% of people are brilliant, but you're always going to get yeah. an idiot somewhere and people will be shouting at you abuse and stuff. But like, that's, and I can understand, I sympathise with footballers. I don't care how much money they're on. It's not nice. And money doesn't soften that. It it doesn't. And someone like, um, you know, say Gareth Bale, who's finished recently, I have an enormous amount of sympathy for him because you know, he, these football boys have to play. And like rugby, we only play maybe 10, 11, 12 high-profile games a year. The club games are pretty low-profile. It's only international players where you get, you're under the microscope. Footballers are under that microscope 50 times a year. And football fans yeah. are really quite ruthless. So, I mean, the, the pressure, the mental resilience you need to have to play football, for example, a lot for a long time. I admire those boys massively. And and it's I don't want it to sound patronising, but unless you've gone through it, it's very difficult to understand, you know, because – if you can't, you know, people don't realize the toll it can take on you. When and maybe this is why I'm introverted. But when you walk into a shop and people just want to talk to you about rugby and a lot of it, a lot of people complain, I'm like, look, these—they're my friends, by the way—that you're criticizing. Like, you know, not, yeah, they yeah. think it's just like a computer game they can complain at. And don't get me wrong, if I could go back and live my life again, I'd do it all over again. I'm not saying I wouldn't do it, and I'm still I think I'm very privileged. But I don't think a lot of people understand sometimes the the pressures that. Sportsmen and women go through. And look, when, and then but this is where I go back to my perspective I'm thinking, well, okay, I, I think I'm under pressure, but imagine a surgeon who's performing life saving surgery on a family's kid and it doesn't go to plan. Then I suddenly think that, that when I talk about that perspective, then I suddenly go, if I had a bad game and getting criticized and not left alone, I think, okay, imagine being that guy. It's actually not that bad. You know, that, now that is real heroes work you know when they're trying to do perform that sort of work so it is tough but like i said you just got to try and get that perspective sometimes but i do think people you know need to not not all people some the minority of people if you support your team rather than criticize you're much more likely to get success out of them than being than by being overly critical you know so i kind of i know it's difficult sometimes but try and be supportive where you can so like when you're watching kids play at grassroots level don't criticize them support them and if you support people you're much more likely to get back a positive response
0: look you've been characteristically generous with your time and i um, I don't want to intrude any further in the words of the last four British prime ministers. I don't intend to detain you for very long. <laughs> um, you've sort of achieved pretty much everything there is to achieve as a player since retirement. You've you've tried your hand at, at coaching. You've dabbled in the media. Um, where is Sam Wilburton going to be in five years' time?
1: Yeah, good question. Um yeah, so because people say, "Where do you get your competitive kick now?" And this sounds really soppy now, and I'm not just saying this. People are, watching motivation now?" I do know I have got interests. I've got a couple of business interests which I I, I love. I got a a fitness business where which is like that's a passion of mine. I teach people how to be how to be fit just from an online app. You know, I love that. That takes up a lot of my time. I love the broadcasting. I, I love breaking down the game of rugby to the layman and even the rugby enthusiasts to help educate them on the game. I love being at the coal face there. So they the two things that I love doing from a work perspective, but the one thing that's important to me most, and I, and I said this going back when I did a documentary, when I finished, they're like, well, what's your motivation now? And I'm like, to be a dad, I, I want my kids to think of me, what I think of my parents. And somebody says, "Where would you get your kick now? I tell you where I get my kick. And I know a lot of people won't maybe agree with this, but I'll go do the school run and my boy comes out who's three years old. He sees me, his eyes light up and he sprints towards me and jumps on me. Like that. That that is like absolute priceless for me. Like absolutely priceless. And, you know, I got people I do work with now. I say, look, when you have kids, I don't expect you to be in the office till after school run because I know doing the school run is an important thing. And your kids will remember that for the rest of their days, like being there for your kids. And I'm often doing emails 9, 10 o'clock at night because I'm happy to put in the time to give a little bit more time to my kids when they're around, you know, in the house, and then I'll just catch up on stuff in the evening because I know that's important for my kids. So my motivation now is and the things I look forward to in life, yes, I want to build a business. yes, I want to be a good TV broadcaster, but I want to be the the best dad I can possibly be, and I want them to think of me what i what I think of my parents. and so I guess, I live half a kilometer from my parents. My twin brother lives opposite the road from me. My sister lives in between us all, and my wife's from a very similar family who are the same. We got about twenty-four family members in a mile radius, so family's very important to me. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I know that to be, like 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 a sports career, you got to put time into your family. If you want to have a, a good, sort of successful, loving family, you have got to put time into it, just like anything else. And that's my main my main driver now.
0: I can't think of a better place to leave this conversation. Sam, thank you very much. No, pleasure.
1: Thank you, sir. Pleasure to catch up again. And I'll see you soon, no doubt. Thank
0: you so much. You've been listening to Extraordinary
1: Tales in Extraordinary Times, brought to you by CSN.